Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And I'm also the co-founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, a psychotherapy center in Long Beach, California. We specialize in helping people who are struggling with sex addiction and porn addiction. We also help people who are struggling with anxiety and depression. If you're looking for help and you're in the Los Angeles or Orange County area, look us up. You can find more information at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help, or you can call us at 562-431-5100. So we have a great episode today. Today, I'm going to interview Jonathan Horowitz, and he is the founder and director of the San Francisco Stress and Anxiety Center. Now, in working with addiction, I have found that most people, once they resolve the addictive behaviors or the drug use or alcohol use, they're left with some underlying issues. And one of those issues can be anxiety. And if the anxiety is left untreated, I think that increases the likelihood of relapse. So once again, none of us like anxiety. Some, in some ways we need anxiety. But in other ways, when it's debilitating, it can really hamper our life and really be a burden for us. So Jonathan is going to talk about that. He's going to talk about how he conceptualizes anxiety, how he treats anxiety, and he's really going to share his wisdom in working with this population and how he helps people. So I think it's a great episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. So let's go ahead and get it started.
All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. This is episode 32, and my guest today is Jonathan Horowitz, and he is the founder and director of the San Francisco Stress and Anxiety Center. And today he is going to talk about anxiety and how that impacts people who may be struggling with addiction. Jonathan, you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Dwayne. I'm, I'm excited to do this. So my name is Jonathan Horowitz, and uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. And as you said, I'm the director of San Francisco Stress and Anxiety Center. We are a, a pretty large uh, anxiety treatment center in the Bay Area. We've got locations in San Francisco, obviously, and then throughout Northern California. And my personal background, so I started out when I was in grad school in my early 20s doing anxiety research and kind of research-oriented grad program and then kind of made a transition into being more, more of a clinician focusing on anxiety disorders and, and stress management. And I've been doing that now for about seven years since I opened the center here in San Francisco myself and and uh, there are about 18 other clinicians that work with me and we work with really a wide range of clients most of them obviously identify as having problems managing stress staying on top of stress some of them have clinical anxiety disorders like generalized anxiety disorder panic attacks social anxiety things like that but it's really a wide range of people and we tend to work with a lot of folks who are actually really, really, you'd say high functioning, like really high achieving, successful, achievement oriented types of people who find themselves in really stressful jobs and are trying to cope with those pressures and uh, try, trying to succeed uh, and learn how to deal with their anxiety. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to have you on because a lot of times when people are they're struggling with recovery or maybe they get into recovery from an addiction. There's a lot of these underlying disorders or problems and anxiety is definitely one of them. I, I see that a lot with people who come in, they, they get sobriety, they're doing really good, but this anxiety is is still causing them a lot of problems. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk to you about what that is, what that looks like and how people can get help for that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Great. So let's kind of just Let's just start off right on the top. Everybody hears about anxiety. What's the difference between like maybe I guess health is healthy anxiety or problematic anxiety? What's what's going on there? So uh, the first thing that I think people need to understand, and this is a little bit tricky. It's a little complicated, but and and people don't like to hear this necessarily when they're suffering with bad anxiety that's a problem in their life. Anxiety itself is not actually a bad thing. It's not actually a harmful thing. Our emotions, we are equipped with these emotions from an evolutionary perspective. We evolved to have this full range of emotions that are supposed to equip us to deal with difficult situations that might arise. So when you're feeling anxious, you are looking out into your environment. You're looking out into the future. You're scanning for things that could go wrong. You're on alert. Basically, that's what anxiety means. You know, you're on alert. You're looking for what could go wrong in the environment. Now, thousands and thousands of years ago, when we were living in a very different place, very different lifestyle, the threat might have been an actual predator out in the environment. And so we have these physiological reactions that get us ready to deal with that tiger in the bushes, right? Our uh, heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, we're sort of looking around, we're scanning the environment. The threats that we have today that we deal with day to day 
are very different from that, but we're still equipped with the same psychological and physiological machinery, the same equipment to deal with that. So when it's a Monday morning and your inbox is totally flooded and you're overwhelmed and you get an email from your boss that's ambiguous and you don't really know what it means, but your boss is very upset, you're going to have that same anxious response as someone would have thousands of years ago, except now we, we have different ways that we have to learn to deal with that. Okay. Is it, I, I, have a, I have a, like, as you're talking about this, I, I have a question. Okay. So we get the email and, and I think all of us get that email and we feel some anxiety. What separates that when it's for someone who's has problematic anxiety, what would that look like? Like, well, how is that different from somebody who would, yeah, I have some anxiety about that. And then versus a person who's actually has an anxiety disorder. Great question. Yeah. I think the difference is the way in which the person relates to that anxiety, the way they conceive of that anxiety, the way they treat it. People who just have anxiety and can kind of accept the fact that the anxiety is there and then move ahead and do whatever they need to do in the face of that anxiety don't develop anxiety disorders. It's the people who worry that the anxiety is problematic and they got to avoid the anxiety. They got to get rid of it. They got to cover it up. That's when you start to get into um, anxiety disorders that can directly lead to things like panic attacks. You start to avoid things that, that are really important to you. So, you know, you avoid your boss or you don't go to work. Well, that's going to put you out of contact with important reinforcing things, you know, because you're not going to get paid. So then you're going to be upset. You're going to be depressed or people turn to substances or behaviors, all sorts of behaviors that are going to distract, distract them numb out that anxiety and that's where we start to come into addictions okay so is it you know when you're talking about this about like um here they get this email from their boss and they're starting to feel anxious but they start to hide from that anxiety and that actually intensifies it more yeah and and this can look a number of different ways but one way that that might look is procrastination. I think we've all had this experience before of having something come across our, our email account or, or whatever, and we don't want to deal with it. And so we don't, we put it aside. And what we really don't want to deal with, because we know we should deal with the thing, right? But what we really don't want to deal with is the anxiety and the unpleasant feelings that might come along with having to deal with it, right? So we avoid those feelings. We let the matter sit. It gets worse and worse. It starts looming in our mind as this thing. That, oh my God, I've got to get to this. And now there's this other layer of anxiety. Maybe I'm not the type of person who can do this job. Maybe I'm not capable. I'm such a procrastinator. You know, you start beating yourself up. There's all these other layers of emotional pain and, and suffering that come on top of the, the, the actual thing, right? And those kind of cycles of avoidance leading to more and more negative emotion and more and more behavioral avoidance, those show up across a range of different disorders, OCD, panic, um, depression, substance abuse. So when I work with folks, I'm really trying not to get really hung up on like, what is it? What does the behavior look like? Like, I'm not going to say to someone, okay, how much are you drinking? Oh, you're drinking five days a week instead of four. Therefore, you are an alcoholic. I don't try and do that kind of approach. It's more like, what function is this addictive behavior serving in terms of emotional regulation, in terms of avoidance? What is it, what is it doing for you? And then when we understand that, then we can start to look at like, are there other ways that you can engage with the difficult emotions so that you don't have to use the substance or, or behave, compulsive behavior? Yeah, and I, I see that a lot in, in addiction treatment. You have these very obvious addictive things that people are doing. Maybe they're drinking or using drugs or using sex or porn or, or food or whatever. 
And um, that's the first thing, you know, when they go into addiction, addiction treatment, that's the first thing to go, right? They like pull back from all that. But then they're left with all of these feelings that they have to learn how to cope with. And for some people, it's depression. But for some people, it's this kind of chronic anxiousness that they don't know how to, to cope with. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You start to, you get rid of the substances or the behaviors and it's like, people have to look at this, like, what do I do now? How do I sit with this feeling? That's a really difficult thing. And and I think it shows why if you're doing any kind of work with addictions or if you want lasting behavioral change, you really got to get kind of deep, right? Like you really have to understand what is this person trying to accomplish? What's important to them? And what are they really avoiding? day to day, where are they getting hung up? Because if you don't change those things and then you can get rid of a substance for the short term, but that person's still going to need some other coping strategies and skills and and yeah. And then that reads that leads back to relapse again too, because you can only I mean, being in anxiety, it's miserable. If you don't know how to cope with it, it's anxiety is uh, especially intense anxiety. You're you're on constant alert. It's a it's a horrible feeling. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really difficult to deal with, and this is where I think good therapy can come in. You know, giving people the skills to um, deal with anxiety and and to cope with it. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Like I I still don't have clear language, I guess, on how to like. I, I don't want to necessarily say get rid of anxiety. And a lot of times when people come in, they're like, yeah, I have this really intense anxiety. I just want to get rid of it. I just want to feel better. You know what I mean? And in a way, we're not really trying to get rid of the anxiety. I mean, the problem is that you're trying to get rid of the anxiety, right? Drinking works great for getting rid of anxiety. I mean, you do a couple of shots, you're not going to feel anxious anymore. Right. But the real question here is like, how can you deal with? How can you cope with the anxiety that comes up when you go into difficult situations when there are things that trigger this anxiety? And the crazy thing is when you make a practice of putting yourself in difficult situations and facing anxiety, the anxiety usually starts to fade and go away, or at least like it's not so much of a problem. But we have this cycle of avoidance that a lot of us fall into. And, uh, you know, so this might look like for someone, they're social, they have some social anxiety. They notice that when they go to parties, if they drink a little bit, they feel a little bit less inhibited and a little bit less anxious. And this just becomes their go-to. They, they can't be in a social situation without drinking. That would become intolerable. When really, if they were to force themselves to do that and they, sh- they went to a handful of parties and kind of forced themselves into conversations with people, they would find that they have a lot more freedom and flexibility. They probably wouldn't feel as anxious anymore. They wouldn't have that need to drink. So, so you know, it's kind of like um, that you have to I, I think the irony is you have to expose yourself to that discomfort to actually get relief from the discomfort. Totally. Yeah. You have to expose and, yourself. But it's yeah. so hard to do because it's like, it feels awful. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything we're built to avoid anxiety. If anxiety felt good, we would get ourselves in a lot of dangerous situations. You know, most people don't find being scared and anxious really appealing. There are some people, you know, there are some thrill-seeking personality types and stuff who, who are into that, but most of us aren't. And so when this is the hardest part, right? Like, being an anxiety therapist, it's pretty easy after a little while to know what people should be doing to feel better. The really hard thing is getting them to do that, right? It's like being a personal trainer. 
as long as your client shows up and do, does the exercises, they're going to get fit. But how do you keep them motivated and how do you keep them into it? Because this is like really difficult for people. I, I think that's across the board with all of uh, yeah. psychotherapy and trying to make these changes. It's like we know what works, but getting everybody to do it or even sometimes ourselves to do it, it's not always easy. To- yep, yep. Yeah, getting ourselves to do it, yeah. So I have a question. What would it, just kind of using a general example, like what might you do to kind of help them see the benefit of this or help them or direct them to to make these changes? Yeah, that's a great question. This is, this is where I really like acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, ACT, because this is a model of therapy that really incorporates values. Like there, there is a behavior change piece. There's a cognitive behavioral piece where we're looking at thoughts and emotions, but we're always trying to do that within the framework of values, helping the person. So trying to understand somebody where they're coming from, what they want in life, what's important to them and helping them to really get clear on those things. And when we can get a really, really clear emotional, when, when someone feels really emotionally clear about where they want to be, I, I, I want to stop. I want to kick this addiction because I want to be here for my grandkids in 20 years. You know, And when they really, really fe- feel that and they really see that, they're going to be much more willing to do the work that's difficult day to day compared to someone else who's just like, yeah, I saw on TV that you're not supposed to drink more than two glasses of wine a day and I'm doing that because that's not really an emotionally charged motivator, if, if that makes sense. So really connecting this behavior change to something powerfully meaningful to them. Yep, yep, powerfully meaningful. This is pretty much in line with, I heard your podcast uh, on motivational interviewing. So there's a lot of consistency here, helping the client get clear on why they're making the choices they're making. Right, and then so once they kind of have that clarity, then you can, then I guess, then what's the next step? Yeah, so once they have that clarity, the next step would be to establish some goals, right? So the idea being that values are these things that you, values aren't really concrete. They're sort of directional. If you value being a good parent, you're never really going to check that off your to-do list, right? Like that's always going to be a thing that you're trying to do. Being a good parent, a goal about that might be, I'm going to go to all my kids' baseball games. You know what I mean? That's, that's some concrete goal that you can then set. Then when you have that goal and then the, the person goes out and they start to do that, inevitably what happens is emotional and cognitive barriers are going to come up. Let's say this person is really anxious. They have panic attacks whenever they go out in public. Well, they start going to the kids' baseball games and they find out, oh my God, I'm going to have a panic attack if I sit here. So now you have this really concrete behavioral challenge that you can work with someone from a therapeutic standpoint. And the focus of treatment can be working with the anxiety at the baseball game. At some point, they get over the, you know, the anxiety at the baseball game. And then you kind of go, well, what's the next goal? What else is really important to you? And whenever treatment kind of stalls out, then you can say, you can go back to the values. Okay, what, how, how do you want to be a better parent? Where is anxiety getting in the way? And then you just kind of go from there, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense because you're giving them concrete actions. And then they're doing these meaningful things that reinforce that positive change. And then you're working with them. It sounds like also to develop strategies to deal with like going out to that game. Okay. I would imagine you do breath work or meditation or something to kind of give them coping mechanisms to 
find out that they can actually do it. Like they're going to survive these feelings. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's a million techniques that we can draw on. There's, there's breath work, there's cognitive restructuring, there's, uh, there's all sorts of things tools that we can use. And we try to fit those to the individual person, figure out what they're actually going to use and what they're going to respond to. But um, yeah, the important thing here, I think, is helping people get clear on like what they really want to do, what their life is really about. And when this becomes really interesting to me as a clinician is when you start talking about helping people to disentangle what they really want to do versus what they think they're maybe supposed to be wanting to do. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. 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 Like, and, and a lot of people it's like at work, they're like, well, I just don't want to fail. And I've spent my whole life not being a failure. And that's really important to me. And then, well, how do you shift that to like, what are you actually trying to accomplish? What's actually important to you? That can be really, really difficult for people who are like, even people who are really smart and successful, you know, that's, that's a tough one. Right. And I mean, it sounds like that really fits into recovery, you know, people who are getting like long-term recovery, this is the work they're doing. They're making their life really valuable and they're really clear about what they want and um, very strategic in their in their behavior choices. Yeah, yeah. That must be so cool to see that, that process as people are in recovery. And do, do you feel like for a lot of people, this is the first time that they're really trying to consciously make these changes, make these choices? My experience has been is once they get, once they kind of start to get that sobriety and kind of slow down the chaos that comes with the addictive process and and they can hold on to that just long enough, then they can make that next step, which I really call the recovery part, right? Which is doing these things that you're describing so well. They And yeah, it is really exciting to see that. And I would imagine for your clients too, who are working on anxiety, it's so wonderful to see people be able to take that next step in their life and it's meaningful to them. Yeah, that that's definitely what's important here. You know, getting people to do the things that are meaningful and getting them out of that conversation about just getting rid of anxiety. And that, that can be a real challenge. People who have severe anxiety, like panic attacks and, and panic disorder longstanding, they're spending a tremendous amount of time and energy just fighting with anxiety every day. You know, they wake up in the morning like, am I going to have a panic attack? Like, that's the central question of the day. And that's a huge time suck and, and, and energy suck, right? So to see people make this shift to like, oh, what am I going to accomplish at work today? That's, that's great. How do you, when people are having those, uh, just I'm curious about like the panic attacks, because how do you work with people? I mean, that sounds very, very severe, right? And, and uh, really debilitating and so intense. I mean, they feel like they're going to die. Uh, how do you help them when, when they come in? Yeah. So the first thing we do, and this is really kind of simple and it's really powerful just explaining to people what a panic attack is because there's a lot of misconception about panic attacks. <laughs> I've been rewatching The Sopranos, which is like one of my favorite shows. I love that show too, by the way. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome, right? It's so good, especially, it's, yeah. So Tony has these quote unquote panic attacks, right? Where he passes out and where he faints and the show is kind of, that's a really important thing in the show. But that's not really a panic attack. I mean, like 
like I've seen them. And I think a lot of physicians and, and other medical professionals have misconceptions about what panic attacks actually look like. Or they'll say like, what were you panicking about? Like if you're freaking out about something that happened. Oh, I had a panic attack about my boyfriend because he cheated on me or like those kind of things. When, when I talk about panic attacks, I'm talking about like a physiological false alarm kind of reaction where out of nowhere, somebody's heart starts beating fast or they feel like they can't catch their breath or they get dizzy. They start to notice that they assume that it's a problem and that makes them more anxious. So they attend more to the anxiety to try and stop it and get rid of it. And then that just gets worse and worse. And before you know it, they're in the emergency room or something. So the first thing we do with people is try to explain to them that like, this is how a panic attack works. This is a physiological thing. This is how you contribute to it in trying to stop it. That works really well for people to get rid of the huge, whopping, life-shattering panic attacks. And then after that, after that, it's a matter of teaching people to change their relationship to their anxiety so that they're able to sit with it when it comes up. So part of this is like mindfulness med- meditation training where you're just like, What's happening right now? Are you able to handle this sensation? Because you always are. You always are able to handle it. And then part of this is like more active cognitive restructuring where we're asking questions like, what are you scared of happening right now? Are you in control right now? The person who thinks they're going to drive their car off the highway because they might have a panic attack, actually asking them, okay, you're anxious behind the wheel. Are you actually going to drive the car off the highway right now? They never are. Like we think not in control, but we totally are in control most of the time. So yeah. And, and I think just, uh, sometimes just understanding like, oh, this is what my brain is doing. My fear fight and flight response is in high alert and my brain is, is doing this, but it's not actually anything more than that. Yeah. It's, this is just, this is your body and your mind doing this thing, putting on this whole show when it's really, it's a big false alarm. There's nothing actually to worry about. Yeah. And I mean, it's unpleasant. Doesn't mean it feels good, but you're really not in any danger. And uh, there's no, no bear is going to jump out behind the tree and eat you. So you're, you're probably good. Yeah. There's really no bear that, and, and usually the things that people worry about are like, if I have a panic attack at the table, everybody at the table is going to know and they're going to think I'm crazy. Or I'm if I'm exercising in the gym, I'm going to fall down on the floor and pass out and it's going to be the most embarrassing thing, you know, and those things really tend not to happen. Right. That's so true. And then once they can experience that, they can realize, oh, wow, you know, I, I can do something about this. I can I can get through it. And that's wonderful to see, too. Yeah, it's super empowering because you get this framework for dealing with a lot of different things in your life. Like even once the panic attacks go away, it's kind of like, all right, this thing is going to be difficult. What is it about whatever the thing is I'm fearing? It's like, what emotion am I fearing that I would have to deal with? And then realizing that you can deal with that. It's, it, yeah, it's it's really powerful. That's that's awesome. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about this because I think anxiety is one of those things that many people struggle with, even from extreme, even to mild. It's it's an issue that uh, I think a lot of people have and, and a lot of people struggle with. So I'm, I'm so glad you're sharing your wisdom and knowledge on the Addicted Mind podcast. What would you, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're out there and maybe they're struggling with anxiety, what would be the one thing you'd want to tell them? Well, I would tell them that it's treatable. I mean, 
this is the one thing that never ceases to amaze me. How many people just assume that panic attacks or phobia, social anxiety, all these manifestations of anxiety are not treatable. They're like, I am like this as a person and that's never going to change. As far as psychological problems go, this is one of the most I don't want to say easy, but it's one of the most straightforward things to to work with. We know how to do it. So I would say avail yourself of any treatment options that are out there. If you're in the Bay Area, come see us. (laughs) If you're outside of California, I would say look on ADAA is the American, I'm sorry, the Anxiety Disorders Association of America. And there are a number of online treatment options now that are offering treatment at somewhat reduced or or affordable rates. Look for a therapist. I would say for anxiety, try to find a, a therapist who works from a cognitive behavioral perspective, just because that's really what works. That's kind of the gold standard treatment for anxiety. Yeah, all those things. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. So how can people find you? If they, if they want more information, how can, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find us at uh, www.sfstress.com. That's SF, like San Francisco, stress.com. Great. That's awesome. I'm going to put all of the links that you mentioned in the show notes as well. So anybody can go there. It'll be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 32. And uh, we'll have all the details there. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I really appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dwayne. This is really fun. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 32. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help. Or better yet, share us with a friend. So thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next week. Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.